0: reading this morning is from the closing verses of Matthew's fifth chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 43 and read through the end of the chapter. As we come to this passage, first join with me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, it is Your Word for which we hunger and depend. It is Your Word that is our help, our hope, and our home. So by your Spirit, O God, we pray that you would breathe your Word to life in us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Listen for God's Word for us. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So first, a word of gratitude to you. I thank you for this series. Back in April, I asked, what would you like us to talk about? and Over the past ten weeks, you have given us a chance to think together about some important questions. We've talked about citizenship. We've talked about forgiveness. We've spent some time reflecting on prayer. We ask, where do we find the fingerprints of God even in the midst of suffering? We considered the politics of Jesus, and the series began with what my family calls the four things… You have raised some difficult questions and I am not surprised you are thoughtful people. We conclude this series with perhaps the most challenging word we receive from Jesus. Everyone agrees that the ministry of Jesus is a life of love. There's nothing more commonly associated with Christian faith than the idea of loving one's neighbor. The passage we read last week cited that commandment from Leviticus. Love God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus takes this idea of love and pushes it to unreasonable limits. Jesus seems to believe there is no circumstance, no situation where love is not the response. Love even your enemies, he says. But why? What good does that do? Do do you think if you treat an enemy with kindness and grace, with love, that it will change them? I wouldn't count on that. That seems about as likely as this little video Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest Laughing back and forth at what the other one has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Hoodie lolly, golly, what a day Never ever thinking there was danger in the water They were drinking, they just guzzled it down Never dreaming that a scheming sheriff and his posse Was a- watching them and gathering around I've been hooding Little John running through the forest, jumping fences, dodging trees, and trying to get away. Contemplating nothing but escape and finally making it. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day! Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day! Okay, it's a bit silly, but don't you wish things were like that? where friendship could emerge even when it's beyond reason, where cats and chicks could snuggle together, where dogs and lion cubs could roll in the grass, where sheep and elephants could play together in the sandbox. There's a part of us that would love life to be that way. But in reality, we all have enemies from time to time. We all have those people in our lives who hurt us or belittle us or belittle those we love or oppress those that they can gain any advantage over or who are just wrong about some things, just wrong. They don't get it. And they hurt us or they make us so angry I think that's the most common emotion to this, it's anger. And Jesus says to love them? To love them is a crucifixion experience for you. And it's not likely to end up with puppies and lion cubs playing together in the yard. So what is supposed to happen with this? As I said, a more common response to enemies is not love, but anger. There's a lot of anger in the air these days. We are a divided nation, and public discourse is often hostile, seldom is public discourse shaped by love. No, public discourse is primarily shaped by anger. My friend Reverend Scott Black Johnston, he's a senior pastor at Fifth Avenue Church in New York City. He has an excellent book that is coming out in a couple of months, and in it he notes that there are people around the world who are paid to fabricate stories for social media with the entire point is to make readers angry, and it's working. Uh, NPR reports that 84% of Americans identify that they're angrier now than a generation ago. My friend Scott writes, we are angry with politicians on the other side. We are angry with media who support them. We are bent out of shape with thick-headed family and friends who do not share our particular brand of anger. I get it. Anger is a power. And there is a place. There's a place in us for anger. The 4th of July parade in Highland Park ends with senseless violence and grief. And I am so sick of this constant lack of humanity. And it makes me angry. My friend Bob it works at our food pantry He said a young girl was there with her mother recently and she looked at Bob and she said, I'm hungry, can I get a snack? He said, sure. So he went back and found some potato chips. He brought her a little bag of potato chips. She thanked him and then sat down at the children's table and began to color a bit. And when she finished, she presented her drawing to Bob. He expected a picture of rainbows or trees or something, but instead, scratched out in red crayon, it said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Bob showed it to me. It made me grateful for the ministry of our pantry, but then it made me angry. Angry that there are so many children who are hungry every day and far too many of them do not have a guy like Bob to give them something to eat. It's almost impossible to get to lunchtime, isn't it, without learning something, hearing something, experiencing something that makes us angry. A friend of mine said he has a sign in his office that says, if you're not angry, you're just not paying attention. I get that. There's a place for anger. Even, even Jesus turned over the tables in the temple, and there is a sweetness to it, isn't there? There's a sweetness to that anger because what fuels that anger is the conviction that I am right and you are wrong. There's a sweetness to it because there is a righteousness to it because sometimes it's true, you are right, and they're wrong. But I worry that sweetness is a bit like cotton candy. It just dissolves and leaves us thirsting for something different. Jesus calls us to love enemies, but why, particularly when the anger toward them might be righteous, justified? I'm not very hopeful that in real situations of enmity that love is necessarily going to change them. So why go through the effort? Maybe Jesus' concern is less about what happens to them and more about what happens to us, of what happens to us when we continue to live in our anger. Again, my wise friend Scott says this, our faith reminds us that anger is a risky partner. In the heat of the moment, anger can feel good, but its its lasting effects are caustic. Anger will betray you. It will eat away at your relationships, your integrity, and the very fabric of your community. The Bible makes it clear that anger is something best left to God, and even then, Scripture repeatedly describes God as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Anger has a place, but it's risky. Uh, Flannery O'Connor was a novelist and writer of short stories. She died in 1964 at the age of 39. Her writings were drenched in her southern culture and shaped by her Roman Catholic faith. In her short story, Everything That Rises Must Converge, she writes of Julian. Julian is a young adult who hasn't quite launched. He's gotten his education but lives with his mother, which goes about as well as often does when a young adult son lives with his mother. She's… She is a woman whose racism is as obvious as her southern drawl. Uh, The story takes place as they're riding on a city bus. Much of the story reveals Julian's unspoken thoughts regarding his mother, regarding her racism. Julian is more enlightened than his mother. He sees the wrongheadedness of her condescending view of people of color. He sees it, and it makes him angry. He hates her for it. Uh, They exit the bus, and Julian witnesses his mother in a sappy, sweet smile engage in a belittling act toward an African-American child. And Julia can't take it anymore. He erupts. He decides to teach his mother a moral lesson. He spews his righteous anger. He calls out her racism. He calls out her sin. He tells her that her assumed superiority is a sham, an illusion. At which point, his mother, already in poor health, shaken by the attack, stumbles to the sidewalk, suffering a stroke. It becomes clear that Julian's anger, which was justified, had consumed him and he had become what he hated. His righteousness filled him with condescension. There's a place for anger. There is. But when anger becomes the lasting lens through which we view another, We run the risk of becoming that which we hate. To say it simply, anger is sometimes justified, but it is not justification for bad behavior. The truth is loving your enemies may not have any impact on your enemies. It may not change them. The two of you may not end up like a puppy dog and lying club playing together the goal is more modest than that. The goal is to make sure our anger doesn't reduce our behavior to that which we condemn. Every day there are issues, moral demands, and situations in in which we all must discern what's right, what do you believe is right? They're choices that we have to make, and and we want to make the most faithful choices that we can. So we have to discern what do we think is right. And as soon as you do, you know this, as soon as you do, it will put you at odds with folks who see the world differently, with folks who we in all candor believe are wrong. And so when we decide... What is right, when we've discerned what our faith expects of us, then Jesus calls us to take a next step, which is not just to be right, but to be righteous. And righteousness is a relational category. Righteousness speaks to how we are with our neighbor, to the relationship we have with one another. And Jesus says, love is always the right and the righteous choice. It may not change the enemy, but it may keep us from becoming that which we condemn. There's an apocryphal story from the Civil War. An army, I can't remember if it was the Northern or Confederate Army, but there was an army marching on a a town, and there was a woman from the town who was marching out to face the army, and she was armed with a broom. Her neighbor stopped her and said, they have horses, they have muskets, they have cannons. You You can't win with just a broom. She said, maybe not. But at least they'll know whose side I'm on. Part of the challenge of the faith is the call, as we said a few weeks ago, to react to the world less shaped by what the world does to us and more shaped by what God has done for us. That's the side we're on. I bet you've had this experience. I got I got an email um, in the last couple of weeks. I got I got an email. Somebody I didn't know. Somebody from the community. Um, and 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 let's just say it was someone who was less than enamored with me. Um, it, it was someone who was fairly convinced my read of scripture was was lacking, and and someone who was convinced that if I was not Satan himself, we were friends. And, and I read it, and it was ridiculous, and it made me angry. And so I crafted a response, and it was eloquent, yeah. and it was clever, and it was devastating. And thank God I didn't send it. I let it sit until my anger no longer governed my response. And then I wrote a response much less eloquent or substantive or convincing, but it was kind. At least I hope that's how it was read. And my emailer probably feels justified, and that's fine. I don't know, but I know that I'm grateful that I don't have to be ashamed of what I blasted out in an angry moment. I'm grateful for that. You've been there. Are you angry? Most folks from time to time are. Some folks are just angry all the time. It's often justified. It's just not as often the most precise tool for making things better. So Jesus says, try love. There's no circumstance where love is not the right response and the righteous response. It may not change the world, but at least the world will know whose side you're on. Pray with me.